Everybody's finding their seat. I'll find the announcements. All right, just a reminder, if you plan to take the uh, course for the CPR AED certification, also let me know and I can tell you where to go for the last hour. And then uh, a reminder on the annual congregational meeting on February the 9th. And then, uh, do are there still some CD ca file cabinets back there? Okay, if anybody would like those, then they are available. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The purpose for coming to Bible class is to learn the scriptures so we can apply it in our lives. That is part of our worship. Worship is by means of the Spirit, and so if there is if we have sinned and we need to confess sin, that's necessary in order to recover our walk by the Spirit. And so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for uh, confession if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening to be refreshed by your word, to be strengthened, encouraged, be motivated to live and walk with you. Father, we're thankful that we have your word that is uh, able to transform our thinking, to renew our minds, to give us that focus on eternity, on your plan and your provisions for us. Father, we pray for a nation we pray for the leaders in our nation. We pray that we might have a wise government. We pray that you might open people's eyes to the truth of what is going on. And Father, we pray this so that we may execute your plan for our lives in terms of the mission the Lord Jesus Christ has given us, that we may do it without the interference, opposition, and hostility of the government, and that parents can rear their children according to the principles of your word without government interference, and that we might see a transformation take place in the various uh, education facilities of this nation because so often the hard work and effort of parents uh, runs into the brick wall of a postmodern culture that brainwashes their children. And Father, we need to uh, see a change there. We need to see improvements in education in churches, education of parents and training their children so that they can withstand the onslaughts of uh, Satan's world. 
Father, we pray for us as we study tonight that we can come to understand your word and see how it applies to our lives, see the magnificence of what you have done in your plan of salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, but I want to begin with a little current events. I know most of you probably don't realize there's an impeachment trial going on in Washington, D.C. There, there have been a ver- various talk shows where they've asked the audience if anybody has been watching, and nobody's watching, so I don't know if you're watching, maybe not, but I think that you're a little more informed than, than most people. I had several people email me that it was a good idea for me to listen to Alan Dershowitz's uh, impeachment remarks on Monday before the Senate. So I took the time yesterday to listen through his remarks, and they are profound, they're brilliant. And for someone who is a lifelong Democrat and someone who is generally progressive, The one thing that I've noticed about him is that he has an integrity in that he believes the law is the law. Now, we may not like the laws that he likes. We may not want to change the laws that he wants to change. But as long as it's the law, he does have that integrity. And he has an integrity of methodology, one that I think a lot of people should learn because it's it's the same methodology that we use to understand and interpret the Scripture. And if you listen to his opening remarks as he describes how he went back into the dusty archives of of various uh, law libraries digging out the original documents of the uh, dealing with the viewpoints of the uh, the framers of the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, and and how they understood these words and phrases that they used, and also going back to, for example, the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson in, I think it was 1866, 1867, somewhere in there, and looked at the arguments that were set forth by the justices and by the uh, Senate and the uh, at that particular time, and that's how you do this kind of work. You take time to look at you take time to look at history. You want to interpret words in light of the times in which they were said and understand how they were used. You want to look at the writings of the authors of documents to find out what they thought and how they understood these things so that you can interpret their documents in in light of their original intent. The Constitution is a dead document. It's not a living document. It is, by that I mean it was written and it is not changeable. It is not something that mutates except according to the uh, rules that are set forth and the laws set forth in the Constitution to amend the Constitution according to those processes. Anything else is wrong. And unfortunately, We have a lot of uh, legislators who have tried to uh, change and attack fundamentals in the Constitution without going through those processes because they know they can't win. And one example today is the assaults on the Second Amendment. Another is that they're segueing very rapidly, especially in Virginia, in terms of attacking the First Amendment. 
once the Second Amendment goes, everything else dominoes. That's what gives us the ability to to defend those things. But the law is king. That was Samuel, the title of Samuel Rutherford's treatise on politics grounded on the word back in the mid-1600s, Lex Rex. The law is king. And, you know, Dershowitz understands that. So I give him credit for that because he shows an integrity at sticking with it rather than ignoring it, which is what's going on and by a lot of those who are in the House and in the Senate. Eight and a half minutes, or about eight and eight minutes and 15 seconds into his uh, uh, impeachment speech the other day, he talked about one of the uh, judges in dealing with the, the impeachment of Johnson, and he's talking about his interpretive principle for defining and understanding the phrase treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, most people in our country just look at it and go, oh, misdemeanors, that's like a traffic ticket. That's not how you understand it. That's that, that it violates a basic rule of hermeneutics. And so Dershowitz said, Judge Curtis's interpretation, that is, of the term uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, of those terms, those four words, or five words, other high crimes and misdemeanors, he said Judge Curtis's interpretation is supported Indeed, in his view, it was compelled by the constitutional text. Treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors are high crimes. Other high crimes and misdemeanors must be akin to treason and bribery. That statement is a quote from Judge Curtis. In other words, he goes on to say, Curtis cited the the Latin phrase, Nositer asosis, which means basically the idea that, let me I put this up here, it has the idea uh, that, and it means it is known from its associates, a word whose meaning is uncertain, questionable, or doubtful can be understood and defined by its association with surrounding words and its context. This is a definition out of from the law.com and law dictionary and online law dictionary and Black's Law Dictionary second edition. Uh, the phrase means a word whose meaning is uncertain, questionable, or doubtful can be understood and defined by its association with surrounding words and its context. What have you heard me say over and over and over again ad nauseum for the last 20 years about interpretation? It's like real estate. Location, location, location. But it's context, context, context. When you take the text out of context, you're left with a con job. And that's what's happening in, the, in, the, uh, in Congress. So he goes on to, uh, the dictionary definition goes on to say, this concept is frequently used in canons of construction or interpreting and understanding the meaning of the words in a legal statute, ordinance, or law. Now, it's interesting. There are a lot of similarities between theology and the law, which is why a lot of theologians, I mean, a lot of lawyers over the years became theologians. 
You have C.I. Schofield was a lawyer turned theologian. John Nelson Darby was a lawyer turned theologian. John Calvin was a lawyer turned theologian. And Andy Woods is a lawyer turned theologian. So there are a lot of similarities between these two disciplines. So Dershowitz says that uh, states this meaning that when the meaning of a word that is part of a group of words is uncertain, you should look to the other words in that group to provide interpretive context. So that means that when you have a list, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, misdemeanors is the ambiguous word, and to define it, you have to go back to the first two words which set the context, treason and bribery. So high crimes and misdemeanors uh, describe that those acts which fit as treason and bribery. And this is what led to his conclusion, which was an important conclusion, that to impeach someone, they have to be guilty of a crime, which means they violated a legal statute. He did not argue that in, uh, when was it, 98 or 99, when Clinton was impeached. He took the opposite view but he said he, he's gone back and he studied and researched and studied and researched uh, more and more and read more and more, and it, it, it forced the evidence forced him to change his mind. Now, I, I can appreciate that process as a pastor. You study, you study, you study, and you come to one conclusion. Twenty years later, you've studied a whole lot more, and you may change your mind on something because you've gotten more information, more evidence, and more data. He gives an example um, Dershowitz gives an example. He said, the late Justice Antonin Scalia gave the following current example. If one speaks of Mickey Mantle, Rocky Marciano, Michael Jordan, and other great competitors, the last noun, that is competitors, does not reasonably refer to Sam Walton. Why? What do Mickey Mantle, Rocky Marciano, and Michael Jordan all have in common? They are athletic competitors. So <clears throat> Sam Walton wouldn't fit because he's a great competitor, but in business. Or, or to Napoleon. He was a great competitor on the battlefield. So Dershowitz says, applying that rule to the group of words, treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, the last five words should be interpreted to include only serious criminal behavior akin to treason and bribery. That's how you do exegesis. You go back and you understand authorial intent from his, by looking at the words and how they were used in the original context, and you argue on the basis of context and on the basis of historical context. When, when I was teaching um, Bible study methods, there are several contexts. You have a uh, a historical context. What was going on in the culture at that time in history? When Moses is writing the Pentateuch, he uses a form, a, a contractual form, that was typical of treaties of that day called a we call it a suzerain vassal treaty form. But you have to understand that structure as we have archaeological evidence in order to see what Moses is doing. That helps you understand the framework, but it's the culture of the time in which the Pentateuch was written. 
Then you have a literary context, and that is when you go in and you look at the Ten Commandments, there is a context because it is part of a section that goes from uh, Exodus 19 to Exodus 40, which has to do with the setup for giving the law and the law itself, the Ten Commandments is the prelude, and then the uh, various uh, ordinances and judgments. So you have a literary context, and you have an immediate literary context, which is that which surrounds the sentence or the paragraph or uh, the, the immediate chapter, and then you have a broader context, which may be the argument of a book. So you have all of these different contexts, and then there's a different context, and that is the context of the audience. Because when you take something and you translate it, you may have an accurate translation, but it may not resonate with the audience. I remember some years ago we were translating uh, one of Pastor Theme's book, or the people over in Belarus who had just gotten over there got some uh, some Belarusians to translate the plan of God into into Russian. They didn't have any frame of reference for, well, uh, the, the human race has three strikes against them. Strike one is Adam's original sin. Strike two is the imputation of Adam's original sin. And strike three is personal sin, and you're out. If you don't know baseball, that's the con- you have to understand the context of the audience. If they don't understand that, then you haven't communicated and so that, that, that's a problem. So you have all these different contexts, historical contexts, you have the broad literary context, the immediate literary context, and then you have the context of the audience. And all of that must go into how a pastor comes to understand what the text means, but then he has to communicate that so that the audience, the audience can understand them. And let's say you were looking at a fishing manual that was written in the mid-19th century, and you are going to uh, read this to a modern-day audience. And in the fishing manual, it's talking about going out and capturing bullfrogs, and they, they are using a, a, a pointed instrument to stab the frogs so that they can... But if you have an audience made up of Texas Aggies, you might not want to say, so you can gig them. Because to an Aggie, gig them has a different connotation than gigging frogs. So you have to know your audience and be careful how you say certain things. All right, well, let's look at our passage. We started this last week in in, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, which is the concluding part of the introduction. And we went through this, studied it last time, and I translated this. Therefore, I, that is Peter, will not neglect to remind you constantly about these things, even though you have known. It's a perfect tense verb. It's talking about the present results, so it's not incorrect to say you know it, because it's talking about the present results of a past completed action. But that's not readily apparent in English to a lot of people today. So if you say you know it, they think it's a present tense verb. It's a past tense, I mean, if they're thinking of verbal action at all. Uh, It is completed action with the present results that they now know this, 
and that they have been made stable. So they are stable, but they're stable because of a past completed action that was, and the instrument of of their knowledge and their stability is the Word of God by means of the truth uh, that you now have. So they have been taught this in the past. They've been taught it by Peter in First Peter and more immediately in the uh, fir- first chapter from one one down through one eleven. So that's what he's alluding to here in this context. Now, in the next three verses, he says, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about being reminded. He's talking about repetition. He's talking about telling them things over and over again. And last time I gave you about six or seven different uh, points related to uh, repetition. And tonight I wanted to give you a few more to explain why a pastor needs to engage in repetition. And I always go back with review because you need to hear certain things. So one reason a pastor engages in repetition is to just make sure people get it. At any given moment, a third of you are not paying attention to me. And that's not abnormal. It's normal. Some of you may not be paying attention to me, like yesterday when I was listening intently to Dershowitz's speech, wanting to catch everything like the sentence I just caught. I woke up after 10 minutes. That happens. We're tired. Uh, You know, sometimes pastors look out and they see people sleeping. One of the things I learned a long time ago as an audience member watching an audience is that you have a lot of folks who get up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning and they go to work and they work hard all day long. They get off work, they get a bite to eat, which puts some carbs in their body, and then they go to Bible class and for the first time they just get to sit and relax. And what's the natural thing to do? You've been awake for a long time, and that is to go to sleep. It doesn't mean you're not interested. It doesn't mean you're bored. It just means you're tired, and your body is feeding off of those carbs and putting you right to sleep. So you have to repeat again and again so that people people get it. So that's important. And, And if I say it one way this week and another way next week, then maybe the way I say it the second time or the third time or the eighth time or the ninth time might be when it just suddenly goes off and you say, oh, I get it. I think I mentioned this a while back, but I had a conversation uh, a while back with somebody who made the comment that they heard me say something and they had never heard me say it before. And I say it all the time but they finally heard it. So you just never know. A second reason there needs to be repetition, and this is a little professional secret that most pastors won't tell you about. If you're teaching more than once a week and you're, you're really trying to do your homework, you're going to, every now and then, come to passages that are really difficult. 
And you may need to read 10 journal articles or 10 commentaries explaining the intricacies of a very complex grammatical structure in a, in a paragraph. You don't have time to do that in one week. You may discover something halfway through that that opens up a whole new avenue of inquiry, and you just run out of time. So one thing that pastors will do is they'll go back and review or talk about something related to it that they've already studied before so that they can buy a little time to study the passage a little more. You've probably heard a lot of pastors do that, and you just didn't know it. But that's, that's a little secret, so don't tell anybody. When I, was, um, when I was working one time with an intern, I was training him on trying to speed up his preparation process just a little bit and think a little more quickly. And so one day I had a plan. He was going to be teaching a Bible class in a couple of, in about a week or so, and I, he was working on it. And I said, uh, you've got about six hours today to work on that, and so I want to see what you've got at the end of six hours. You should have it, have it completed. Three or three and a half hours later, I came in and I said, okay, here's reality. You have a deacon who's a close friend, and their wife was just killed in an automobile accident. You need to go to be with the family, and you need to go, to the, go find out where he is. So you can take about 30 minutes to finalize what you're going to teach tonight, and you probably won't get back to look at it again. Talk about a deer-in-the-headlights look just like, what? That's reality. I don't know how many times something has happened, maybe not that drastic, maybe, uh, you know, I've got a couple of meetings, maybe somebody's sick and in the hospital and I do need to leave, or maybe I just get caught in traffic, and instead of uh, getting back to work on things at 2, I don't get back until 4, and so I have a lot less time. And so you have to figure out how to work faster, smarter, whatever, and sometimes uh, repetition covers up a little bit of that. But that, those kinds of things happen. That's just part of life. A third reason is that while you're writing down my sixth point, I talk about the seventh and the eighth point, and by the time you tune back in, it's point number nine is, and you panic but you know that you're going to hear it again so you can relax and the next time I will repeat it and you will get it. And then my favorite of all the reasons to repeat is after I've taught something eight times and I'm tired of it too, the person who really needs to hear it comes into Bible class finally and I have to repeat it for the ninth time because they're the ones that really needed it to begin with. See, you don't know about all those things. You sit out there, every now and then people will, will say things to me like, did you have a bunch of visitors last night? Usually somebody live streams, did you ever have visitors last night? I said, yeah. Did you know if they were saved or not? I said, no. So I gave them the gospel. I spent 30 minutes explaining the gospel because three people who I had no knowledge of came in, and i got to make sure they understand the gospel. So there's all kinds of things that go on. And uh, you never know when you're sitting there in the pew why I might have suddenly shifted gears halfway through a message to go into something everybody uh, knows pretty well. So those are just some reasons that there needs to be repetition. First Peter 1 uh, thirteen says, Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent 
to stir you up by reminding you. That's the New King James Version. The Holman Christian, uh, what is it? Holman Christian Standard Bible says, I consider it right as long as I am in this bodily tent to wake you up with a reminder. Now, when you put those together, that communicates pretty well what Peter is saying here. The first, the verb here is hegeomai, which is a word that uh, ought to be familiar to some of you. It's the word that is translated count or consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It is an accounting term, and it means to count, to add up, to consider. It means to think. It is also the word that means to impute value to something. And so that's the word, that the Greek word that lies behind the verb for impute, to impute righteousness to somebody. So it has, it has a range of, of meanings, but here it is this idea, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent. Now, this is an interesting word. The word, the form of the word here is skenoma, which is usually translated a tent or a dwelling place or a temporary dwelling place. It is based on a, there are various forms of this word, skene, which is a trans, trans actually it's a, um, it's a cognate of the Hebrew word shakan. You can hear it's got the same consonants, the S-H-K-N, shakan, skene. You have S-K-N. And this word shows up in Russian. It shows up in Ukrainian. It shows up in Greek. It is the, the root term for the tabernacle, which if you take a verb like shakan, and you want to turn it into a noun in Hebrew, you put a, the M in front of it. So it's mishkan. That's the Hebrew word for the tab- tabernacle. It's a temporary dwelling place uh, for God until the tabernacle uh, was built. And so this is also the word that is used, and it's uh, translated uh, tent and even... Uh, the form of the Greek word that's translated uh, tent varies. There's another form, skenos, and that is translated tent. That's the word that we find in Second Corinthians chapter 5, which we'll look at in just a minute. So Peter says, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, this temporary dwelling place, and that's used as a as a metaphor, as an idiom for the body, for the physical body. He says to stir you up, and this is a Greek word, de-egairo. Egairo means to raise up. That's a word that is related to the resurrection of Christ. He was raised from the dead. We have been raised together with him in Ephesians uh, 1.5 and 6. Uh, to raise up, to awaken, to arouse someone from sleep, to stir them up or motivate them. So the literal meaning has to do with waking them up or lifting them up or raising them up, and it is used uh, idiomatically to arouse someone mentally, to stir them up, to get them thinking, to get them motivated, to get them focused, and to, and to, and to act. Let's turn, hold your place 
at Second Peter, and let's turn to Second uh, Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five is one of the great chapters in the Bible. It is also one of the the first part of it is one of my favorite passages to read at a funeral or a graveside. Paul writes, for we know that if our earthly house, so that's the first way he describes it, and, and it's, a earth, it's a house for our soul, and it's earthly because it was made from the chemicals of the soil. When God made the body, the physical body of, of Adam, he did it from the dust of the earth, from the, from the soil. So it's our earthly house, this tent, that's the word skenos, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building, and he uses the word oikos, which means house. We have a building from God, a house, and he uses another synonym there, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we have a earthly house that can be destroyed, but there is a building from God, a house, a permanent house, that is not made with hands, that is eternal in the heavens, an immortal body. And then he contrasts the two. He says, in this, in this what? In this house, in this tent, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So one is earthly from the soil, one is made without hands from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, that is when we receive our resurrection body, because that's what it's talking about. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. What's interesting there is that really doesn't mean naked without clothes. That means that you have a soul without a body. So the soul is not clothed. The soul cannot interact with anything unless there's a body. The soul by itself doesn't see, hear, taste, touch, feel, any of those things. So the soul, God designed man so that the, the soul has to have a body in order to interact with that which is around it. And how the soul, which is immaterial, interacts with a material brain is something that I look forward to having a few discussions with the Lord in heaven I think there's a lot of people who wonder, how in the world can an immaterial soul run a physical material body? How's that connected? And what happens if somebody has total amnesia? What happens to that part of the person when, they're, when they have uh, dementia or when they have Alzheimer's? There is a very um, uh, well-known uh, Hebrew professor whose name escapes me right now. See, this is what happens when I go off on a rabbit trail. Um, his name will come to me in just a minute. He was professor of Hebrew at Dallas Seminary back in the 40s, uh, 40s and the, and the uh, 50s. And he was trained as a rabbi. And when he was in his early 20s, he was trained as an Orthodox rabbi. And when he was... Uh, uh, in his early 20s, he became a believer in his, the Jewish Messiah. He then went to Dallas Theological Seminary. 
he had read over and over and over again his entire Hebrew Bible, which nobody at Dallas Seminary in the faculty had ever done. He knew more Hebrew than all of them combined. And it wasn't long, of course, before he was, he was, teaching, uh, he was teaching Hebrew. When he was in his late 80s or early 90s, he developed Alzheimer's. Within a year or two, he, was, he had forgotten he was a Christian, and he was going back to synagogue. I want to talk to the Lord. How does that happen? That is a, a, a really interesting uh, scenario. But anyway, his name didn't come back to me, but you get the point. Uh, so we have uh, this connection between the immaterial soul and the, the physical body. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, that is this mortal tent, this is the same tent that Peter is talking about. We who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. Notice this further clothed is, is something that is greater than the current way in which our soul is clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has uh, Feinberg, Charles Feinberg, I knew it would come to me. The hard drive spins, but sometimes it spins slowly. That was uh, Charles Feinberg. Uh, for we who are in this tent being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God is omniscient, and he's prepared everything just perfectly. Who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That is the, the fact that we are um, branded or sealed by the Spirit. He is our guarantee that guarantees that we will eventually realize our full salvation. So Paul then goes on, so we are always confident because we know that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, either to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So those are the options. And when we put off this earthly tent, then we get a heavenly one, a heavenly body that is permanent, that is ours throughout all of eternity, and that is our resurrection body. So this is what Peter is talking about. So turn back to Second Peter chapter 1. This is what Peter is talking about when he says... Um, as long as I am in this tent to stir you up. So he is saying, as long as I'm in my earthly body carrying out my earthly ministry and mission, I am to stir you up, to motivate you, to stimulate you by reminding you. So hearing things over and over again is an important way of getting us motivated in the spiritual life because we forget things. And I remember when I was sitting in Bible class, when I was about 40 or 41 years old, I had done my THM work, I had done my doctoral work, I had published a book on, on spiritual warfare, I had learned a few things, and I realized that most of the things that I heard in most of the 
sermons and messages and Bible classes that I went to, I already knew. And I began to think about that. See, this is what happens when you're sitting in Bible class. You, you, it's the, I'll say something, the pastor will say something, and that gets you started on a line of thinking and a line maybe of application in your own life. And it, it takes two or three minutes, and you come back, you're, now where am I? What, what's going on? So you need to hear repetition for that. So I was thinking about this, and I realized that for much of my life, I had wanted to know what do I believe and why do I believe it? And, and that is typical of a young believer, of a young man, as, as John talks about the, the babies and the young men and the older, uh, mature men. And the, the babies want to know things. They want to learn things. They say, well, why do I believe this? You, you ever been around a, ba- a little kid? They're always saying, why, 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 why? They want to they learn everything. And so that motivates you. I go to Bible class because I want to learn. But you'd notice that sometime around the late 40s or late 30s or into the 40s, people who came all the time sort of began to fade out. They were hearing things, oh, well, I already know that. What happens at that point is you're, you have to shift gears spiritually. You're not going to Bible class to learn something new. You're going to Bible class to be reminded of what you know so you won't forget it and it will stimulate you to growth. And that is really important, and that's a, a step that a lot of people miss. And it's in the stage of spiritual adolescence where you're, you're not growing, to, you're not motivated by learning something new, you're motivated by being reminded so that you can continue, <coughs> continue to press on to maturity. So this is what Peter is talking about here. And then as he mentions this, I'm in this tent, he knows something, he knows that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Now, what he means by putting off his tent is that he will die and he will be face-to-face with the Lord. And this was what the Lord Jesus Christ showed him. Now, the word there that's translated know is not that I came to know. That would be genomai. Here, or excuse me, that would be gnosko. And here it is oida. And oida has to do with something that you have learned. Uh, Gnosko, coming to know, oida is when you have learned it, and it's part of the makeup of your soul, and it's part of your intellectual intellectual armor and intellectual ammunition. So he knows this, and he knows that he's older and he must uh, die, but it's going to be as the Lord Jesus Christ uh, showed him. And this is, refers to what the Lord said to him in John 21, 18, and 19. Most assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. That is, you got up, you got dressed, you tightened up your belt, put on your shoes, and you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands Somebody's going to put on the handcuffs or tie your wrists together, and they will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. 
and that would indicate that he would be under arrest and probably taken to a place of execution. And John then says in verse 19, this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, that is, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. You, and the implication was you're going to eventually die because you're following me, and that's the challenge. So what we know about Peter's death and later life is that he had, uh, he, was, he traveled after his time in Jerusalem and being the founder of the church there in the early part of Acts, Later, he traveled. We have hints of this from some of the epistles. Uh, for example, in, uh, in Paul's epistle to, to the Corinthians, he references the divisions in the congregation. Some of them followed Apollos, some of them followed Paul, others of them followed uh, Kephas, which is Peter, and others were the holier crowd. They followed Jesus. So that obviously indicated that Peter had been there. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, <coughs> in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul uh, re- references Peter as one, uh, one of the apostles who took his wife along with him as he traveled. Now that really flies in the face of the whole celibacy argument uh, from the Roman Catholic Church that here's Peter who, according to them, is the founder of the Roman church, and he had a wife and traveled with his wife. Uh, But he did, and he wasn't the founder of the church at Rome either. And then when we see, when we read or studied 1 Peter, we saw that he had an audience that he was writing to in the central and, and northern central Turkey, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, those are in the center of Asia Minor, Asia and Bithynia. And so he had obviously had a ministry to the Jews in the diaspora in that area. And at the end of First Peter, he says that he wrote that from Babylon. And there's a lot of people who argue that that is uh, just a code word for Rome, but there's no indication of any other place name ever being used as a code word. And everywhere else, Rome is Rome and Babylon is Babylon. And so he is, there's a huge Jewish community in Babylon, and he's the apostle to the Jews, so he would have spent a good deal of time there. There's no indication that he went to Rome early at all. In fact, when uh, Paul writes Romans, uh, which is later, Peter has not yet been there, and yet there is a church in Rome. Now, the only way we know about his death is from tradition. John twenty one eighteen, as I just mentioned, the Lord tells him how he's going to die, but not when or where he's going to die. First Clement, which is written by a pastor in Rome who is known as Clement of Rome, was written near the end of the first century, probably in the late 80s or 90s, and it mentions the martyrdom of both Peter and Paul, among many others. In First Clement Uh, 5.4, it testifies to the uh, fact, but not the place of Peter's martyrdom, along with many others, when there was a great multitude of martyrdoms, which best fits the uh, time of Nero's persecution of the church, when many, many Christians were uh, executed in horrible, horrible ways. 
Later on in the early part of the second century, uh, there's a church father named Ignatius, and he wrote an epistle to the Romans, and he also mentions the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, but he doesn't mention where, but because he's writing to Rome, it's usually, in, it seems to be inferred that the place where where their deaths occurred was in Rome. And because they're uh, linked together, he says, I did not command you as did Peter and Paul. So he talks about them as if they were uh, in close uh, context there in Rome. There is another, uh, not an apocryphal book, just another uh, extra biblical work called The Ascension of Isaiah. And in that, it's a Jewish Christian work written in the middle part of the second century. And it talks about how Nero martyred one of the twelve, and that is believed to be a reference uh, to Peter. And then uh, late in the second century, Dionysius, who's the bishop of Corinth, also mentions that Peter and Paul taught together in Italy, and Irenaeus at the end of that century says that they uh, preached together in Rome and later Tertullian says that P- Peter was martyred there. The only person that writes specifically about Peter's death comes into the third century, which is Eusebius, who's the uh, writer of the, the first church history, the ecclesiastical history, and he says that Peter was crucified uh, upside down. But that's from the early third century. So that's 200 years later. So we're, we can't say for sure that that is, how, that is how Peter died. But he knew that his time was near. He knew what the Lord had said. And so he wants to leave something for his readers that they can go back and read over and over and over again after he dies. The word translated decease is exodus, which means to depart. Uh, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder. And he uses the word spudazo, which is where we have study to show yourself approved under God. It doesn't mean study. It means to be diligent. The context indicates diligence and study there. And so, moreover, I will be diligent to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So it has the idea of being diligent, being zealous, laboring over something. And so Peter is is taking his responsibility seriously. He's writing this so that they will have this record and they can go back and study it over and over again. So this is how he ends the introduction. 1 through 15 introduces this epistle, and then he begins to go into the first section, which begins in verse 16, where he is talking about the importance of the Word of God. And he begins by talking about the audible word that he heard from the Father when the Father spoke at the time of the baptism of Jesus, and the Father said, "'This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.'" And he's going to develop from there the prophetic word, which is the prophecy of the Old Testament. And in verse 19, the first part, so we have the prophetic word confirmed 
which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. And then verses 20 and 21 are two of the key verses in understanding uh, inspiration, the inspiration of Scripture. But that just gives you an overview. So in 116, 17, and 18 we read, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, we didn't get it because we made up intricate, detailed stories to fool everybody, but because we were actual eyewitnesses. And it wasn't just one person, there were many persons, so the multiplicity of witnesses confirmed and agreed with our with the same testimony. Verse 17, For he that is Jesus received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So there is an announcement that Jesus is his son, a declaration that Jesus is in his son. Have we talked about that recently? Anybody awake? Sunday morning, Psalm 2. That's what this goes back to. We're declaring the sonship of Christ. So that is what this is alluding to. And in verse 18, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So not only uh, did they not make up the stories, they were eyewitnesses, and then they heard the voice of God. So this is the foundation for what will come. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. What is, what's the key theme of Second Peter? It's a warning not to be deceived by the false teachers. And so here Peter begins to introduce this idea that we are eyewitnesses. We tell you the truth in contrast to those who are making it up. Those who are, have these cunningly devised fables and myths and stories, we're telling you the truth. This is what we saw. This is what we heard. John does the same thing at the beginning of the epistle of 1 John. What we saw and what we heard, we communicated to you. So we, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so when you get into this particular section, the word that is translated cunningly devised fables is kind of a tricky word. In many places, it has a good meaning. It's the verb sophizo from sophos, meaning wisdom. But it is also used to describe that which is a cunning deception. And it is used to describe both God's wisdom, which is true wisdom, and the false wisdom of human viewpoint and the foolishness of man, especially in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, the second half of chapter 1 and on into chapter 2. It is the idea of being skilled in formulating something in a very artful manner and a deceptive manner, indicating a tremendous uh, cleverness. 
And so that's that's how it is translated, the idea of something that is cleverly and artfully co- uh, concocted in order to deceive people. He said, we didn't do that. We made known to you the power related to the omnipotence of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitness of his majesty. Now, when did that take place? That took place in Matthew and is described in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 5 on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it is at that point that Peter goes on to say, for he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, as they went with James and Peter and John, went up on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he received from God the Father honor and glory because the Father announced that he was his beloved Son. He declared that audibly. If you had had your MP3 recorder there with you or your video camera, you could have taken a picture of it. You could have taken a picture of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove coming down over over uh, Christ at the baptism. You could have uh, heard the same announcement at Christ's baptism by John the Baptist, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now that same announcement is made by the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration. So let's look at Matthew 17 for just a minute. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, we don't know which high mountain this was. There's a couple of options, but uh, we don't know. Uh, Up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. That's the verb metamorpho. It's the same word that's related to being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So he's transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. So the glory of God is breaking forth in in light. That's the same kind of thing that happened when Moses went into the tabernacle, went into the holy place, and God gave him the law. God spoke to him, and he would come out. He had to put a veil over his face because it, it still radiated the light from the presence of God. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. So here is a map. They've been up in the area of of, uh, the northern part of Galilee, north of the Sea of Galilee, and headed towards Caesarea uh, Philippi. But we don't know that they stayed there because six days go by, and six days would take them just about anywhere. And so some people think that it's up, you can see this on the topographical ridge here. This is Mount Hermon. This is the highest point in Israel. It usually has enough snow in the winter so you can go skiing there. And then down here just outside of Nazareth, you have another location, uh, Mount called Mount Tabor. Uh, Most people pronounce it Mount Tabor, but it is Mount Tabor, which is what the weapon was named after, the, the short bullpup uh, rifle that the IDF uses. So here is a picture of Mount Hermon, and then this is the distinctive shape, shape of Mount Tavor. Mount Tavor is not as high overall as Mount Hermon, but because it's on a sits in the middle of a plain, it seems to be quite high in terms of the relative elevation. And so we're told in verse 3, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them 
talking with him. They're not too interested in talking to Peter, James, and John. They are talking to Jesus the Messiah. Now, in the parallel, in Luke, it says, they uh, uh, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease or his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So that's what Moses and Elijah are talking to the Lord about. Matthew doesn't tell us the content of the conversation. And then we're told in verse 32 that uh, Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood, who stood with him. Now, Matthew 17, 4, at that point, Peter answered and says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I've got a great idea. Isn't it great that we're here? We can build a, a tent, a skene, for each of you, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And at that point, he is interrupted. And while he was still speaking, verse 5, Behold, a bright light overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So this is the announcement, the declaration of the Lord that Jesus is his son. Psalm 2-7, which we studied on Sunday morning, where God the Father, or excuse me, uh, God the Son here, the Messiah is speaking. He says, I will declare the decree, the Lord, that is God the Father, said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So this is the prophecy in Psalm 2, looking forward to that time in the future. But it's a declaration of the statement in the, in the Davidic covenant. The term declare, since we talked about hegeomai, uh, safar is the equivalent. It's an accounting term. It means to count or to relate. And I told you the other day it has the idea that the scribes would count the letters and count the words and and everything had to be had come to the right number uh, to make sure that the copies were exact. And so it came to mean to declare something or to recount something. So I will declare the decree of the Lord. That decree of the Lord was made in Second Samuel seven fourteen, when God promised to David, I will be his father and he shall be my son. So David, just as David was anointed in 1 Samuel 16 and didn't get the crown until 2 Samuel 2, so the Lord is anointed at the baptism, and he's not going to be crowned until the second coming. And at different stages, God announces and declares who he is, that he is his son. In the ancient world, this is evidenced also in the Code of Hammurabi, that a the heir is not necessarily the firstborn. It is the one that the father declares to be his son. There has to be a legal declaration of who the son is, and that's the one that becomes the, the, the heir, the firstborn. So this is the cultural background for this. When the father declares his sonship, he becomes the heir. That's what the next verse, verse 8 in Psalm 2, is talking about. I will make the nations of the world your inheritance, your, your possession. 
The declaration is, today I have begotten you, which is not a term for birth, as I have pointed out. It is a word where you're declaring sonship. It's distinct meaning between begotten and made or created. And uh, I've got a quote here. I'm not going to read it again, but it's that quote I read on Sunday morning from Alan Ross talking about this is why in the Nicene Creed and the other creeds, they talked about how Jesus was begotten and not made. He is from the second person of the Trinity, and begottenness describes his eternal relationship to the Father. In Acts 13.33, we're told God fulfilled this for us, this declaration, in that he has raised up Jesus So the resurrection of Christ is a declaration of his sonship. His sonship is declared at the baptism. His sonship is declared on the Mount of Transfiguration. His sonship was declared by the resurrection. And this is what Paul refers to in Romans 1.4. He's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. That concept of his begottenness is what's alluded to also in Psalm 110.3. It's just so fascinating to see how these phrases and terms all interconnect, and you have to follow that in the Scriptures to get that. And, of course, as I pointed out in our study uh, on Psalm 110.3, the second half of that verse is very poorly translated. Skip that. We go to Isaiah 42.1 where the Father announces, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my choice one in whom my soul delights. This is part of that declaration. And so Peter will conclude in verse 18 that we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so he goes on to say, So we have the prophetic word confirmed. The prophetic word was the announcement like Psalm 2 and other messianic prophecies, and it's confirmed in what was declared at the baptism, what was declared on the Mount of Transfiguration, and what is declared and confirmed in the resurrection. So they're not following uh, stories or fables made up by men to deceive, but they were eyewitnesses of what took place. So we'll come back next time because the last Three verses of the chapter focus on the inspiration of the word under the category of prophecy. And notice how the structure goes. There's the introduction in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word confirmed. Then verse 20 says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Verse 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And then verse 1, forget the chapter, the next verse then says, but there were also false prophets among the people. What do these verses all have in common? They all mention prophecy or prophets. That's that's the key that unites them is that, that word, that concept. And so we'll come back next time and look at how 19, 20, 21, and 2, 1 are all connected here 
laying the foundation for talking about the fact that there were false prophets in the Old Testament and now there will be uh, false teachers in the New Testament. Notice, not false prophets in the New Testament. Father, thank you for this time that we have to study this, to be uh, stirred up, to be motivated, to be aroused by being reminded of things in Scripture that we know that we serve a living God, we serve a risen Savior, and we are here on this earth to be trained, to mature, so that we might be prepared for our future destiny, ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that as we go through the night, as we go into the next coming days, that we'll think about and remember the things that we study tonight. In Christ's name, amen.